0: This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope.
1: Hey there, welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host Nathan Rittenhouse. All right, it's not January 6th of this recording, but January 6th happened just a few days ago as of this recording. Well, the anniversary
2: of January 6th. Right.
1: Right. The anniversary of well, yeah. So what was happening was there were a lot of reflections on the storming of the Capitol, of course, and a lot of, I would say, very grim headlines and very grim readings of the state of culture, also of the state of the church. But Mm -hmm. January sixth, of course, Epiphany. There's there's (laughs) one there's one feature that I love to celebrate. Yeah, but also January sixth happens to be my wife's birthday, so. It was a tumultuous day, I suppose, for me, because of all of those factors. But the reason we're bringing it up now, we're hoping the dust has settled a little bit on some of the reflection pieces and all of the, the, you know, the kind of diagnostics of our cultural moment. And I thought it would be instructive and helpful to talk a little bit about what happened on January 6th and then maybe talk a little bit more broadly about why it is so difficult for us to not only reach consensus on major issues of politics but why it's so difficult for us to to have to really imagine a kind of vision of what a good society or a good culture would would look like so that's why I wanted to, yeah, that's why I thought it would be helpful to bring this up. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, Nathan, when you, were, when you were reading through the headlines, you had actually sent me one. And the the sentiment here was that not only does this reflect a, a post-Christian culture, but it also reflects a, a post-Christian church. And I think both of us kind of said, "Ooh, ah. Uh, so, I don't know, let's let's talk a little bit yeah. about that highly technical, ooh, ah. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, what are the parts that don't sit quite right with us? So, um, yeah, well, let's go back and reflect on this. So, on the January 6th in question, I had borrowed my neighbor's tractor. I took it back, parked it in his barn, and I was walking home, and it was toward evening, and another neighbor was standing out, and so I stopped in to chat with him, and an Air Force jet went zipping over, and uh, he's like, ooh, he's like, it's really going down in D.C. right now. I wonder what this is all about. And I was like, oh, I haven't, you know, I've been outside all day. I don't know anything about it. And so that was actually my my first introduction was walking down a gravel road near dark. And my got the news from a neighbor. So news travels pretty quickly. But then uh, I think, you know, lots of people with lots of different interpretations of exactly what was going on there. And a lot of really hard and deeply entrenched uh Actually, it's one of the things that shows how quickly narratives form within the news channels that you've been following previously. So I think that that had something to do with it. And then, you know, I think as the as the year has gone on, uh, certainly for some groups, this was really something to really, really focus on. Um, I think, you know, I would say that 70 percent of Rachel Maddow's tweets over the last year were about January 6th. Um, it was just all I just checked on that, just almost in a f- way of fascina- fascination, of like, this has not gone anywhere. This is, you know, and then you look at, I, w- I probably wouldn't have it expected that there'd be a whole commemoration about it a year later, uh, presidential speeches and all of that. Uh, so I guess maybe I missed the, I guess pretty quickly, uh, you know, we talked about it, like, yeah, what, what a bunch of goobers. Well, you know, what was, I mean, so there's kind of the whole eye rolling thing of, um, what were they thinking? I think you and I both had huge, uh, well, lots of people had very, um, kind of wincing at a lot of the religious symbolism, uh, particularly Christian symbolism that happened with it. The, um, Jesus saves flags and the crosses and that kind of thing being part of the images of, of a riot. Um, and that's what I think that, that uh, article is pointing to. However, I think contextualizing it in, A, the relative size, the percentage of people who were arrested and involved in that compared to the amount of people who were there. You want to make that distinction very clearly, I think. And then also, we want to put a balanced perspective on the degree to which this was a threat to democracy. Certainly, you had bad actors there, but it was hard for me to think. I mean, this is kind of kicking a giant in the shins when you look at, you know, was this really going to ever take down democracy? It seemed like, yes, there was quite a kerfuffle there but it wasn't uh, an existential threat to our election system as we know it. So yes, bad ideas for sure, but it would take a whole lot more than that to really put a dent in the stability of the system that we operate in, and that's something to be really grateful for. So there's that, but then there's just been the continuing process, and that's what I think we want to get to in this conversation on the other side of that, of how do you have such a wide variety of opinions of what the good is uh, and how it should be brought about in our time. And and we should point out this is not unique to now. This is a question everybody has been wrestling with in all cultures as long as there's been recorded history. But there are some unique factors. And so this is where I think we should pull in some of the reading you've been doing recently, Cameron, to help us sort out maybe what some of the the nuanced features of this moment having this conversation are.
1: Yeah, sure. And, yeah, of course, the the liturgy of Rachel Maddow's Twitter feed. Always a, a nice kind of <laughs> yeah, right. place to take the pulse of the nation, sure. Well, I mean, yeah. so, I think, yeah, I would probably not yeah.
2: align with her on most things, so it's I think it's important to be checking in on what is important to people who don't see the world the way we do, who we share a culture with. So that's, Absolutely. that was the, the impetus behind that
1: um Yep, yep. I I completely, yep, 100% endorse that statement. But what yeah, I mean, there is also a very a big need and I don't think I suspect this isn't unique either Nathan just before we get a little bit more broad to kind of look at some of these events and see them in symbolic terms. And because that that gives you a way to craft a narrative around them. And this particular event, I mean it is it was extremely serious. It was it was very alarming and disheartening to see the storming of the Capitol. And yeah, there were there were you know nakedly political kind of aspirations at work here. But also it's important to say, and I think this is to say this is not to downplay, but people political idolatry, you know, in and outside the church is nothing new that is a perennial feature of life and certainly it is it's a it's incredibly painful to watch people look at somebody like former president donald trump and see him not only as the commander-in-chief and maybe as a sound politician where whatever wherever you fall there but also as a kind of political savior this happens of course across the spectrum and it's always bad it's always sad it's always lamentable and it's something that has been has always been with us. So I think that helps put it mm-hmm. into... And it's not unique. that Right.
2: Yeah, but also in in American history too, right? I mean, we're not talking about... I mean, it's true globally, but there have been a wild array of attempts of... all. The, I mean, it's not that long ago you had 2016 and the whole Russians are the ones who elected Trump and that's why Hillary lost and all of that. I mean, so you had yep. a different... So we don't want to say that there's one side of a political party who en- engages in this. Uh, maybe the outworkings of some of that are the same, but I think ideologically, what you're pointing to, let's just make sure that we're we're clear. We're on everybody's on the same playing field here.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think one of the sticking points, though, for a lot of people, particularly those who have grown up in the church, is the percentage of you know people evangelicals, self you know self identifying evangelicals. Who have gotten behind some of these these movements? I think there's a lot of room there to complicate that story. Of course, because if you press into the statistics, or even just the, there are there are plenty of people who actually self-identify as an evangelical on a census, who don't necessarily match the convictions, the theological convictions of your typical evangelical as well. So that gets a little bit dicey, also. But it's I think it's it's hard to deny that there there's a significant per- percentage of probably politically conservative Christians in the North American Church have had a troubling relationship with politics. I don't I don't think that that's a statement that's radical in any way. Mm-hmm. My my contention here is that that is very serious and it needs to be addressed, but a statement along the lines of we have a post-christian church i have a problem with that statement because the church is the now we there there are there are ways that it of course it it's probably you know it, it's worked out with care and you know let's also be cognizant of the fact that most writers of articles you don't get to choose your title right <laughs> the, t- the titles chosen for you <laughs> so let's let's extend some leniency there but Dallas Willard used to say, I'm I'm wary of you know lobing too many harsh criticisms at the church because I'm keenly aware of who the boss is. The church is the bride of Christ. And a statement like that is is such a blanket one. And I know we're talking about headlines here and and broad, but these kinds of broad statements are a dime a dozen, particularly in an atmosphere like Twitter. And i I do think that they can be that there's an element of that's irresponsible there we want to we want to speak with care when we're we're when we're talking about the bride of christ so that's that's just kind of one qualification I want to put in there, and we can revisit that as as we go on but let's let's take it in a little bit of a let's bring in my my nerdy reading here for a second so Zygmunt Bauman who is he, was, he didn't die that long ago. I believe it was 2016, 2017, when, when Zygmunt Bauman died in these 90s. So this man had seen lots of history. But in his book, Liquid Modernity, so liquid becomes the primary metaphor for what the shape of moder- modernism now. And so he joins a lot of recent in- intellectuals, by the way, in not really having much time for the term postmodernism. <laughs> Because it seems mm-hmm. to imply that we've we somehow moved past, yeah, modernism. And he, and he would say, no, absolutely not. The dynamic has has changed pretty drastically. But no, we've, we've not stopped being modern at all. But here's what he says. Okay, so everybody, just let me put you on alert right now. Let me just try to put you at ease. I'm going to talk about critical theory buckle for up. a second. Yeah, buckle up. Critical theory for a second. <laughs> Suspend your judgment if you can, just for a second. All right? So... Sigmund Bauman says, I promise this is going somewhere constructive, Sigmund Bauman says that critical theory in its sort of inception, so we're talking about the Frankfurt School, that infamous Frankfurt School, so Max Horkheimer and Theodora Adorno would probably be the two most famous exponents. Their, their initial goal was emancipation of the individual from a repressive and... Totalitarian society. So totalitarianism is the great specter, the great threat in this er, in, in sort of the beginning stages of modernity. And there, Bauman says, modernity—you need to conceive of it as solid. The the goal was on a societal, on a national, on a cultural level to build a lasting, durable monument that would res- withstand all of the tests of time. And you, you would do that, it would be a supremely rational, powerful, totalitarian achievement. And that this is one, this is the first major picture of, a, of modernism. It's, it's solid, it's hard, it's durable. And so in that... So con- with the...
2: Yeah. Can I, can I interrupt you for clarification here? So would one of the, um, if we're looking at modernism, would one of the
1: key features
2: that it produces would be institutions?
1: Correct yes and not yes that's actually that's a phenomenal question not just institutions but institutions that last Nathan that so he right. puts yeah, because okay. he puts great yeah. stress on that because that's in sharp <laughs> that's in sharp distinction now to institutions today so to skip ahead a little bit institutions today are not valued for having long-standing traditions are they generally speaking the institutions right. that we laud today they're 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 Honored or they're they're praised for their adaptability, for their flexibility. Mm-hmm. And he he points out, you know, companies, corporations, different institutions that sometimes will even just do these th- without any major problems. They'll do an audit or do some major shakeup in their structure. Think about you know corporate sh- shakeups where hey we're gonna you know what we're gonna move to an open floor plan or something along those lines. Just to, you know, because we want to tr- try and experiment with new dynamics. And so now you're, you're getting a, a foretaste of, of where, why he's going to move. He's going to use the metaphor of liquid as he goes forward for, mo- for modernity. But the point here is that the critical theory was focused on liberating the individual to be free and autonomous. Now he says critical theory is focused on the opposite problem. Now individualism is so radical and has taken, has gone to such a degree that we don't know how to be people together anymore. We don't know to, how to have real lasting bonds and relationships and community, and we don't know how to think about a good society as a whole because we process everything only on an individual scale. And so it becomes impossible for us to seek a common good. And so he says the task of critical theory now— is to repopulate the public square in a way that's plausible not just you know you you've got to get people together seeking a common cause and what's so interesting about that is that seems a pretty apt description the 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 greek institution he phrases is the, i think the the agora you need that now but how on earth do you do that when we are so radically individualized We don't really have we don't even share common vocabularies anymore. So he's he says that's the big challenge of today, but the big switch up in metaphor is yeah, you move from solid to liquid. And he has he does have in mind that famous statement from Marx where all that is all all that is solid melts into air. Now the the primary picture is of of liquid and fluid. It's so hard to pin everything down. It's it's flexibility, it's agility. We don't prize artifacts anymore and solidity. In fact, the less the less stuff you have statues would the better this, kind of right? a mark of Statu- wealth and elite. So statues would they would. Oh my goodness and and yeah. And haven't monuments played kind of a, a big role in our sort of national debates right so, now? Wait, can, can I also can I interrupt just- he uses he's a sociologist. Yeah so he'll I, yeah. I want
2: to make sure we're we're yep. all coming along together because I I I think I'm following you, but I want to clarify just so we're all on the same track here. So, um, I'm getting too excited, yeah, yeah. Ah! uh so anyway, yeah, and this is this is all written from a man who survived concentration camps, so I think he has a fairly good handle on when political ideas can go awry, yeah, so is so here's a question I have for you in your reading of him that even looking at like um well, all sorts of of rebellions against maybe well, against modernity. So I would, the Arab spring, uh, to the fall of communism, you have sort of these movements against the, the man, the state, right. Of the, the collapse of the, the big solid institutional thing. Um, the problem historically has been, is you have groups that are good at rebelling against those things who then make terrible governors themselves. And so, Rebels don't always turn into good leaders for putting things back together. And we can, I mean, we can give all kinds of examples of that throughout history. So, mm-hmm. so is he saying that America has already gone through that deconstructive phase while still being modern to some degree? Um, that we don't have, is, is he saying that we don't have the same things for those who are critical to, to war against or that we're creating new things? to be opposed to. So if, if, if the historical critical theories of things were attacking the institutional solid modernity, does he think that that solid modernity is gone from our time? Because if it is, then I guess, am I hearing you correctly saying that critical theories then have to retool themselves to be able to react against something else that's far more fluid than what it was in the past. Just help me, Am I am I hearing you correctly
1: there? What needs to be fleshed out? Well, what's no? I mean, he's he's kind of what he what he wants to to point out is that liberation to be individual and 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 autonomous, basically, is yes, that's that's complete. But it's complete to a degree to where now we can't reach consensus on anything anymore. So, so it succeeded. He said, "It's yes." So we exceeded it. And so the terminology he's going to use of course he's he's writing as an academic so you get some some of this cumbersome terminology he he talks about de jure individualism which is the bad kind that's too it's so radical that it kind of dissolves all real meaningful social bonds and de facto individualism and by that he means individualism in the positive sense where we are free for something we are free to be something so it was it was the philosopher a lot of people don't remember this but it was isaiah isaiah berlin who who really first crystallized that that clear distinction between negative freedom and positive freedom freedom from negative freedom right freedom from all constraints get away all the repression and the, but then freedom for freedom to be something and so our ne- negative capabilities our deconstructing powers have far outstripped our constructive powers, argues Bauman, and I think he's right. And so, critical theory now has to be concerned with how we really band band together to make a just and and you know I don't know you all the words you're going to use now are going to sound Weasley, but a flourishing kind of culture. Now, Bauman, as far as I know, is not a is not a Christian, but. You know, a society that functions well, where where people can work together for a common cause, and it seems to me, why to go back to the events of January sixth, not this year, but last year, it's in some ways this is this does give you a. It's not the only terrible event that happened that year, of course. By the way, but it's 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 a window into just how locked up we are when it comes to seeking a common cause, and. You know, ideally speaking, we should be able to, we we don't need perfect consensus. We need balance, too. I mean, we should be able to discuss difficult issues about which we disagree and still move forward together. And the fact that it sounds so hopelessly naive when I say it like that, it, it sounds like I'm straining credibility, points to just how this organized and 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 how and how kind of disintegrated we feel right now in our moment and that's a mark of that kind of all that is solid melts into air quality that bet bauman's talking about does that make a little bit more sense does it help flesh it out a little
2: yeah so there could be two reasons i mean well lots of reasons but two things come to mind so if you look at last year and the year before i mean rioting became like a national pastime you had tens of thousands, you had thousands of police officers wounded and injured and killed in riots all throughout the year. Um, so in some ways, January 6th, some people say was unremarkable because it just fit in with kind of what everybody was doing. I think there is some deeper symbolic weight to that, but all that to say is part of the, part of the thing is it's always easier to unite people against something than for something. So there's, there's that going on. And then it's also, I think becoming increasingly difficult to communicate well, uh, across it. it we're, we're like babble is complete. Uh, we, it's, it's hard for us to even, I think in some conversations, we're not even using words and definitions in the same way that I think add to some of my at moments, hopelessness of constructive thinking and production just because we're not even meaning the same things, uh, when we're speaking. So maybe that's some of the Maybe that's an addition to some of what's going on there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the other big thinker on the scene here that who is, has been tremendously helpful is Alistair McIntyre in the book I'm thinking of is After Virtue. And he he argues just that. And this was 1981 when that came out, so it was very ahead of its time. But he basically says when we, when we use moral language, he calls this emo- emotionalism. What we're doing is we're dressing personal preference up in moral language. So, we are using moral terms to disguise—again, mm. it's not its not always a conscious effort, but this is kind of what's happening, necessarily, because we're so far removed from real, true moral commitments as a culture these days that we just—all we we have, really, the only real meaningful categories to us are personal preference. So, we dress that up in moral language. And act as though we're ma- we're standing on moral high ground for our position, but really it has way more it has way more to do with personal preference. And you know, our friend Oz Guinness has said one of the hallmarks of mo- modernism is that you move from an age of authority to one of where personal preference replaces authority. And so that, but again, that goes to what Bauman is saying when when he's talking about the negative side of individualism. And individualism is not always bad. It's really important to stress, stress stress, that. There's a lot of great stuff that comes along with individualism that I'm super grateful for, by the way. So I just, I just want to put that out there. But this negative side of radical individualism, where you really don't have any kind of authority that goes beyond personal preference, and i think most of our political debates if you really take an honest hard look at them you're going to see that that is that's really the case you're just you're finding different arguments for personal preference and the point is we need we need something bigger than that we've got to move beyond just our whims and wishes and urges because i mean the good of our nation depends on that and so Nathan, you had a helpful distinction that you made earlier when we were when we were talking about you know basically between our two major political parties. Would you mind repeating that on air? Because I think it's oh the one about cause and yeah yeah I yeah. Think yeah. That's, I, think... I think that's helpful and pertinent here.
2: So yeah, I was listening. You're you're kind of telling me about what you're reading, and then we kind of morphed it into this. And then I said, stop talking. Let's let's uh, <laughs> let's record this as a podcast. Well, I, I've been playing you with the idea. Just record everything we ever say. Yeah, there you go. I've been playing with the idea that, and this is a painting with a very broad brush here, but was partially inspired by what you're reading, that um, there's a sense in which progressives, we would say, are seeking a cause and conservatives are seeking a people. And what I mean by that is that it seems like some of the, the more conservative language, we're looking for the group and a definition of who we are as Americans for our context, for example. So we're looking for the group. What does it mean to be us? And we're trying to define that where that I don't think is necessarily the goal um, of, so it's how do the individuals relate to each other in a stable way? So how do we set up that structure of of what it means to be us? And then um, again, broadly speaking, progressives are more of a cause. So um, we're not seeking a people we're seeking justice, uh, which is a fine thing to seek, but something about how, what you were saying there about modernity, liquid modernity, the things that we rail against and the things that we try to build. I just wonder if there isn't something. Yeah. I haven't nailed this down. Exactly. Something that's happening around those concepts that speaks into this. And part of that is, is that I think, um, we have excelled at individualism, but we haven't fully embraced what that means. And so part of that is if I'm going to say, um, the goal of individualism that I have is that you take your hands off me. Don't tread on me. We usually then don't mean, well, so, so the difficulty is to say, okay, don't tread on me, but I want my protest, my preferences to be morally binding on you. And so there's like this half, we've only done individualism. we, We do individualism when it's convenient for us, when it separates us from authority but we don't see that at the same time that that separates us from becoming an authority because the relationships have been fractured culturally speaking. So
1: yeah, uh, yeah. how's that fit in? And one of, the, one of the well, one of the major problems of modernism is the problem of authority and finding a stable source of authority. I mean, just look at debates on mask mandates and and also and the vaccines and all of that. I mean, it's the, you're looking at Various different iterations of, crisis, of crises of authority, but there's there's a deeper problem here, and this is where again we're Christians, so we can run the risk of culturally sounding like real real pessimists, even though Nathan and I are deeply hopeful. But let me just just to show you the 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 pickle that we're in here, <laughs> to put it in kind of <laughs> trivial terms. But you talked about how a cause and. People, right, being the big mm-hmm. distinction, and I think that's I think that's helpful. It's a bit, yeah, it's painting in broad strokes, but it's helpful. But here's here's the problem, though. So, cause for a cause, you're going to need a destination.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For people wh- who are we as a people, you need an identity. And the problem here is you. Here's what we are in deep, irreconcilable, as far as I can see, disagreement on as a nation. We are on deep, deep disagreement on what who human beings are, and what they are for. Mm-hmm. So the notion of coming to a any kind of even a, a you know agree to disagree kind of stance on human telos, the purpose of human life and human identity, doesn't strike. It doesn't seem like it's within the realm of possibility right now. Not with our not with our discourse where it is right now, because again. I think Alistair McIntyre is right. I think emotionalism is largely operative across the across the really across the spectrum, and we often what we what we're doing is just disguising personal preference in moral language because this it's hard. We're conditioned to think only in terms of our own well-being and our own Mm -hmm. mental states and our own urges and our own desires. Right. So. That's the so there's therein lies the deep problem. So, and ideally speaking, so conservatism, you know, ideally speaking, is about protecting that which is sacred and conserving it, and making sure it's preserved and honoring boundaries and not transgressing those boundaries and and being taking great care to protect that which needs to be, you know, basically that what can help ensure you know that the sort of deposit ensure ensure that we can continue to flourish and endure and progressivism of course is committed to the notion that we need to we need to be integrative and keep learning and keep growing and keep moving toward you know higher you know more education and that we need to adapt now ideally speaking you know there's going to be some big big tensions there but ideally speaking these two states of mind there's a helpful dialectical tension there and they need each other and there's a good there there can be a good balance that erupts there but if you're in an era of radical individualism where everything is reduced to kind of tribalism and a kind of culture warring mindset then what could be constructive turns very destructive. And that's and that's where we're at. And I you know, from a cultural standpoint, I I don't see a way out of this right now unless and I mean you, you we're going to have to rethink what it means to seek the common good. We're going to have we're going to have to think beyond an individual level and that means more than just using buzzwords like community. It means that we have to actually factor in that our decisions are affecting everybody else. We're gonna to have to reconceive human beings as, or just recover the truth that we are inescapably social creatures, and that everything we do affects everybody else around us. I mean, we've had kind of a crash course in this with COVID-19, but we need we need more of that. And yeah. So anyway, that's I think we're we're in quite a predicament there from a cultural standpoint.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I think I don't know if. This- too shallow to say, but I think oftentimes there um I don't want to say we're calling for, but I think we want to remind Christians that <laughs> in the chaos of our culture there is a there is a boat in the middle of this chaos, right um and so the the church is the thing that prevails now your relationship to your individual congregation might change or the structure of that or the nature of it, and I think that's why it's so sad when you see tensions and difficulties within the church is, a, is basically that disunity is sabotaging all the lifeboats. Um, so if you're part of Christian community, I think that is the first step in cultural engagement is making sure that your church is a soft landing place for people to properly order and remember, uh, calibrate, recalibrate, whatever is necessary to remember who's really in charge of this. Uh, scripture is so, um, clear on this. The nations are, but a drop in the bucket, you know, kind of the Isaiah the nations plot and plan and the Lord laughs sort of thing. And so to see that our, our churches and our country exist in an embedded hierarchy within a, a larger cosmological order that has uh, a good father in charge of it is a really, um, what it, what it does though, is that it, when you, when you see that it allows you to to feel peace, actually a sense of personal safety. I would be so bold as to say, in a way that stabilizes you in order to be a platform for reaching out to the insecurity and chaos around you. And so the church's role, uh, in in the first place is a is a landing place. It's a it's a f- firm foundation. It's a rocket launching pad um, for mission into the world. So it's it's not to say that you don't do cultural engagement, but I think if you're a Christian who is so caught up in political change as the necessary thing in order for our culture to be saved, that that's, that's many steps down the road. Uh, If you're working well on the, on the stability of your local congregation and putting together a group of people who do have their identity as the children of God, people who have been purified and redeemed by Christ, then actually that is a place to, to exert your finances and your energy and your time to build that first, because uh I think on <laughs> just a on a practical level that's the only place in which um, a joyful, peaceful self-controlled thoughtful, kind and loving existence collectively is possible so uh i I think there's so much that I've seen in the last year that maybe looking at it, studying it, um, being interested in it is not bad. Uh, You know, our friend Alicia once said about a certain candidate, you can vote for this person, but you can't worship that person and still be a Christian. And so I think there's a a necessary ordering that we just have to keep coming back to here of saying, yeah, we can say something is bad over there, but are we doing a good job at the things that we do know God is asking us to do of building and working in the church, um, which is a good thing that does have an identity and does have a purpose? And so there's a conservative progressive hybrid that the church uniquely brings. I mean, think about, it talks about Jesus not entrusting himself to others because he knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. I mean, kind of that book ending stability of his identity. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going Uh, identity and progress, identity and purpose. Christ offers that in the place that we get reminded and encouraged. And we grow in Christ likeness is in our local church. So, um, we're not saying stick your head in the sand, but we're saying uh, if you're losing sleep over some of these issues, well,
1: yeah, be careful. I mean, what do we—I mean, solidity is some—well, I mean, if you want true durability, right, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the ter- church, nor shall the, <laughs> nor, nor the gates of liquid modernity or anything else that the modern world throws at it. Now, that's that's a kind of lasting stability— that you can count on, and I also think of—I think of this. This this ties it ties in beautifully with what Nathan was saying. With you know, with regard to the the both elements in Christianity, the the destination as well. And it's Roger Lundeen. I think I've mentioned this before. I talk about this in my book, Faith That Lasts. But he says Christianity begins in a garden, but it ends in a city and then he also said the older i get the less nostalgic i get and the more excited i get and oriented towards the future mm-hmm. and that future of course he says is the one that leads from the cross through the empty tomb to the heaven to a heavenly city and having that is that's an anchor for your soul mm-hmm. and the the place where you get in touch with that cosmic reality is your local church that seem that may seem so humdrum but you have to grow up to see the beauty of that. I mean, that's that's really it's it's that's that's what it is. And yeah, once again, our our call to arms, go to church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bet you didn't see that coming.
2: Oh goodness. Well, I don't know, Cameron. Can we can we leave it there? Yeah. I, I think there's a lot that is unresolved and a lot of themes that we'll pick up again. But mm-hmm. yeah, let's um let's as a group of people, the two of us who are Talking, thinking out loud about this, but those who are thinking along with us, let's marinate on that for a little bit and see where that leaves us. And we'll trust that the Lord uses that as fertile soil for some great things to to flourish and grow in your life that would shape you into the type of person who could be a real help in a weary world. So thanks for thinking with us. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope.
0: Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers or make a donation. Visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you'd like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.